0: In the very beginning of his work, The Categories, which is often assigned to students as the first work that they encounter of Aristotle's, there is a very important distinction that gets made as the first topic of discussion. And Aristotle goes through it fairly quickly, but we want to dwell on it a bit and and use some additional examples to try to drive home what's actually under discussion here. Now, this is a distinction between three different ways in which terms can be used or the way that he talks about it as being named. So what we're talking about here are not a term just on its own, although we'll come back to that in, in a moment because that does enter into our actual use of these sorts of things when we say something is an equivocal term or there's an equivocation on that term or that it's ambiguous and we, we mean by that that it's equivocal in. In that sense, the distinction itself is going to be between what we call univocal terms, equivocal terms and what here in the categories, Aristotle is calling derivative terms, terms that are derived one from the other. And I, I do want to point out that because this is such a very important distinction running throughout Aristotle's works, you're also going to see this third category described and to some degree developed in different ways in other works. So sometimes he'll talk about it as analogous, kat analogion, instead of being paronuma. Sometimes he will talk about it in terms of a special kind of equivocity. We're putting aside any concerns or preoccupations with that here so that we can concentrate just on what's actually being said in the categories, because I think that's probably enough to take in at one sitting. So you notice that we've got the Greek terms, I Latinized the letters, but this is the Greek vocabulary for it. Synonuma, you know, we get the word synonymous from that, right? And that is what we translate as univocal, meaning that it has one way of talking about things, right? The univocal, by the way, is coming from the Latin, unum and voce. Now, equivocal, homonuma, right? Equivocity, right, from the Latin. And this is the word that we get homonym from, and we'll come back to that notion in a moment and then we have paronuma para is a greek term which means sort of like beside or next to or it means a number of other things as well the way that many prepositions do and we translate this as derivative because it shows a relation of one thing stemming from or deriving from another now you notice that they all these have this onuma in there well that's the greek term that is used for name and it's also the term that in greek grammar At least classical Greek grammar is used for noun. And so what we're talking about here are the names of things that we could in some cases point to it's not as if you can point to knowledge inside somebody's head although we use the word knowledge now why is this distinction so important well there are many cases where we're using language in ways that we don't realize we're not actually referring to the same thing and we get into arguments with each other so for example terms like freedom may have a core meaning but oftentimes they are equivocal terms. And if we don't recognize the equivocity, we can go wrong in our reasoning about them. And we can get into arguments where we're in effect talking past each other because we're not actually talking about the same thing. Let's start with what really is in many respects, the simplest concept, the univocal. So what we have here is a name in common. And then Aristotle will go on to say, they also have the same. And what, what we translate here as statement of essence, the Greek is, you know, referring to a logos logos we're translating here as statement can also mean account description. It's the word that we get reason from all those ologies, you know, those are coming from logos. It also means speech. So it's It's got a wide range. uh, It means argument, too. It's got a wide range of meaning itself. You could say logos itself might be an equivocal term or a a derivative term. But let's put that that reflection aside for a moment. So does the same statement of essence, the same logos, taste, usias, then, is being or essence or what it is that makes the thing the thing. So if we think about, for example, these various pieces of chalk in my hand, they all have the same they all have the same essence or being that's why i can change them one for the other it doesn't matter which one i read on the chalkboard with other than perhaps they're getting a little bit small to work with likewise clothing tie shirt whatever else a person happens to be wearing those could all be understood as being the same sort of thing insofar as they are clothes obviously a tie is not the same thing as a shirt so it could be differentiated in another way we'll come back to the examples that he's talking about in a moment because i want to stress this 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 difference between univocal and equivocal so with equivocal notice that there's something that they share the name is in common here the name is also in common here so that's not what's differentiating them what is differentiating them is that you're using the name to talk about two or more very different things They don't have the same statement of essence. They don't have the same account. Aristotle will also use the word definition horos to talk about this, not in terms of like a dictionary definition, but a definition that actually states what the thing is rather than just what people talk about in the thing being now in cases like this, we are using the same word to denote different things. So we have Aristotle's example, but I think it may be very useful here to use some examples that are a little bit closer to our own time. I mentioned freedom when people get in arguments or another great example from our own contemporary culture would be choice, right? In political context, you're pro-choice. That means that you're for abortion. Or wait a second, couldn't it also mean that you're for charter schools? Well, no, it depends on the context, doesn't it? And so we get into all these interesting battles back and forth. Well, you're pro-choice over here, but you're not really pro-choice because you're not for charter schools or other educational alternatives. Or you're pro-school choice, but you're not really pro-choice because you're not for a woman's right to choose to have an abortion or not, right? These are very different understandings of what it means to be pro-choice. That is to have that term pro-choice predicated of somebody's mindset or political commitments or a program that they are advocating. We could go on and on and on with lots of interesting examples like that, but let's use some examples that are a little bit less political and closer to objects themselves because being pro-choice or, you know, talking about freedom, that's, that's a little bit of a abstraction. The word seal. This is one that I use very often in teaching this material. What does seal mean? Well, one thing that it means is like on a bag, when you close it off, that's a seal. You have a tight seal or the seal is letting air in, but it's also an animal, the animal that we see swimming around in the ocean and doing cute things. And maybe if it's tame, playing the horns or something along those lines. Then again, it can also mean something like a ring or stamp that you use to seal something. And it can even refer to, you know, when we have a state or a country or an office, the the thing, that embossed thing, that's the seal of the president of the United States. Now, those are four different terms, and two of them seem to be derivative, right? The seal of the president of the United States is connected with that stamping thing. And that stamping thing historically is also connected with like sealing an envelope so that perhaps is derivative but do any of them have anything in common whatsoever with the animal? No, they don't have any statement of essence of what it is that they are that is common that is shared between them. So if you think that you're talking about one but somebody else is actually talking about the other one, it's very easy to get mixed up. There are many words that are equivocal in that sense. I mentioned that even the term logos in Greek might be an equivocal term because it has so many different meanings. Perhaps they're connected with each other though. Perhaps they're more derivative, but there are a number of things. You know, Aristotle at other points will point out, you know, the the bone in our neck, he calls that a key, but there's also the key that we use to open up the door. This would be an example of equivocal terms. We run into things like this when we talk with people people who have a different dialect. And we find out that, that a term that we're used to using in one context means something different in another. You know, for example, the term fanny, right? Here in the United States, that refers to one's rear end. And so we talk about a fanny pack, for example. Uh, now in Britain, that means something quite different. And so you probably don't wanna talk about your fanny pack over there unless you wanna have people <laughs> be quite confused and perhaps irritated with you. So th- that, that's a good example. Example of equivocal terms. Now let's talk about derivative terms. So when we have derivative terms, one term has the, let's call it original meaning, although this might be relative. We could have terms that are derived from a term and then another term is derived from that term. So perhaps we don't always trace things back to their origin, but these have the name in common, kind of, kind of the uh, name in common, but they have a different grammatical form. So this is a little bit easier to do in languages like classical Greek than it is in English, but it's also possible to do in English. So for example, this is another case that that Aristotle will use in other places. If we talk about health, right? being healthy is a state of the physical body. We can also talk about mental health too. That would be a derived term as well, but let's talk about physical health. So we say that a person is in a state of health when every organ in their body is functioning the way that it should, and they're not interfering with each other and processes are going on as they should. And I'm not saying that that is a perfect definition. Let's just work with that for the time being. Now, if we use the term healthy, We've changed the grammatical form from health, which is a noun, to an adjective, healthy, and we might predicate that of, say, food. This is healthy food. What do we mean in that case? We mean something like that this will conduce to the state of health, or it will bring you back to the state of health, or it will prevent you from leaving the state of health. It's not the state of health itself. And if you thought that it's, that's what it means, then you'd get a bit confused and you could go wrong in your reasoning about it. No, this is food that conduces to health, right? Another example that Aristotle uses is he talks about urine because this was a, a common diagnostic tool for physicians of his day. Remember, Aristotle's dad was actually a, a physician. And we can talk about somebody's urine or you know they take their blood more often somebody's blood being healthy what we mean there is that that is indicative of health it's not producing the health but it is something that is rather a product of the health that shows us that somebody is indeed healthy so these are all connected with some common meaning some common system of meanings but it's not exactly the same meaning but it's not equivocity either where the terms have nothing in common with each other whatsoever and many of the things that are quite important for us to discuss and to think about fit into this category of derivative terms. Now let's look at the examples that Aristotle actually uses. I think it's always helpful to to look at his own examples as well as bring up our own. Human and ox can both be described by the word animal. That's not to say they're the same kind of animal, right? Humans are one kind of animal. Oxen are another kind of animal. This isn't a metaphorical thing when you call some big burly guy an ox. That would be an example of a derivative or an equivocal term, wouldn't it? But in this case, we're saying that the human being and the ox are both animals. They both fit under that rubric, that term of animal. And we could go on and talk about the statement of essence. So animals, you know, move around, engage in certain processes like, you know, eat Eating, elimination, uh, sexual reproduction, etc., 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 right? Insofar as we consider them as animals, animal is a univocal term, it's denoting the same thing. This would work whether we say human and mosquito. This would work whether we say ox and frog. This would work whether we say snail and porpoise. Pick whatever you like. So long as it actually is an animal, that works. This wouldn't work if we said human being and amoeba. An amoeba is a different kind of life. It it has some things in common with animals, it seems like, but I think we classify it still as something different. All right, let's look at equivocal now. Same sort of example, a human being is called an animal and a portrait of a human being is also called an animal. A portrait is a portrait of a human being, which is an animal, but the portrait itself is not animal, right? Because it doesn't have the same qualities. And so if we're talking about the portrait as animal, we we certainly don't mean animal in the same sense that we do when we're talking about an actually existing human being. So this is quite interesting. Right? We could come up with all sorts of other examples, contemporary examples. For example, you're watching me on this video right now, if, if you are indeed watching this, or at least hearing my voice, could we predicate animal of the image that you are currently seeing? Yes, because presumably there's an actual person here at some point in time, Dr. Sadler, but my avatar or image, or maybe in the future, hologram or anything like that, is not the same thing, not the same kind of thing as me, even though it resembles me in in many respects. We cannot use the term animal in the same sense. For derivative terms, Aristotle actually gives us two examples. He talks about grammar and the grammarian, the person who knows grammar. Grammar is a type of knowledge. Grammarian is the person who possesses and uses that type of knowledge. Courage and courageous. Andrea in Greek sometimes gets translated in in, in these books as heroism, although courage is probably closer. Courageous, right? Noun and adjective. We could also say he behaved courageously, right? That would also be a derivative term. Or he conjugated the verbs grammatically. That is, according to the, the canons of grammar, right? That would also be a derivative term. So these examples I think are quite useful. Now you notice that with these examples, there are two terms being given. So I mentioned that we would talk about a term itself as being univocal or equivocal. What do we mean in, in those cases? Cause that will show up later on in other thinkers and sometimes even in Aristotle. If we say that a term by itself is univocal, we mean that it really only has one meaning. And that all the things that we would apply to that term or that term to have the same meaning, the same essential meaning, right? if we say that a term is equivocal, what we are saying is that there is an ambiguity there that the term itself, depending on what it is being used of, may mean something very, very different. And in fact, if we look at the whole range of meanings of the term, for example, seal, as we used, then it will indeed have a number of different unrelated non-derivative meanings. So, that is what Aristotle is talking about as the very first thing in his categories. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.